This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. Hello and welcome to Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. We do it for the Australian Sports Technologies Network, ASTN, powering sport through innovation. Check them out at astn.com.au. For a second week, we come to you live from the Olympic City in Brisbane, working on a big story up here, uh, which if it comes to fruition, it'll be the biggest story in sports tech in this country this year. Hopefully, we can reveal that next week on the show. This week's show, well, it is Olympic and it is blockbuster. We're joined by Olympic gold medalist Aussie Scott McGrory. Scott won gold in Sydney 2000, the men's Madison with Brett Aitken. Scott, um, and now Scott's one of the the best commentators you'll hear in sport with uh, the Seven Network doing their Olympic coverage, the Summer Games, the Winter Games coming up later with the Com Games as well this year on Channel 7, Scott McGrory. Scott has one of... um, one of Australian sports' most inspiring and most heartbreaking stories to tell. Um, and, you know, if you're having a bad day, listen to Scott and it'll help you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. Um, first, I had the very great, great privilege of um, interviewing Scott many, many years ago and got to know his story, and um, it's it's just extraordinary. Um, Scott's coming up very shortly on the show. Um, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about his story. We'll talk about the Olympic gold and what it means to win an Olympic gold medal, and and how you win an Olympic gold medal. Um, and also the role of technology in cycling. Uh, Scott's been there at the coalface. I mean, as a teenage kid, he went to the Seoul 1988 Olympics, won a bronze medal, and then obviously gold in Sydney, and now as a commentator, last few Olympics with the Seven Network. So Scott's been there for you know for 30 plus years, seeing the evolution of cycling, the role that technology plays. He's been front row, so we'll hear all the great insight from Scott McGorry. As well as that, I'm so totally stoked. So for those of you that have just jumped on board Season 2 of this podcast, Season 1, one of the absolute stars, was our international correspondent, Karma Armani. Now, Karma's been off uh, because she's just completed her double Masters at Ohio University. The Masters is done, and now Karma's about to start a huge sports tech gig in New York City. Karma joins us as a regular on the show, giving us all the latest news from across the sports tech world. Karma is back. She's currently on a Euro trip. I think she was in Rome the other day. I think she's in the Netherlands today. So we're going to cross live to Europe somewhere and check in with Karma Armani. Scott McGrory, Karma Armani, blockbuster show. First, let's take a look at what's making news. And we stick with the Olympic theme. The International Olympic Committee has shown us all its books. And the money is looking good, fueled by digital technology. The IOC cashed in big time in Tokyo, hailing the Games as the most digital Olympics ever. 
The IOC says digital and traditional broadcasts gave them 3 billion unique viewers. They made 7.6 billion US from 2017 to 2021. That's an increase of 20% from the previous Olympiad. 3.1 billion of those dollars came from broadcast revenue alone last year. The Olympics has also given American broadcaster NBC a 45% subscriber surge in its streaming service, Peacock. The Winter Games gave Peacock an extra 4 million subscribers. They now have 13 million, but Peacock still made a loss in the first quarter of the calendar year. Aussie sports tech star Champion Data has signed on as the official stats provider of the Premier League lacrosse competition. Christian Hens from Premier League says Champion Data's technology will enhance the fan experience through insightful and accurate stats, especially around their new fantasy lacrosse offering. And Bond University in Queensland is transforming what was the warm-up field for the 2018 Com Games into a new allied health centre worth $45 million. Up next, Olympic gold medalist and just a champion bloke, Scott McGrory. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. It is my great honour now to welcome Australian Olympic royalty, gold medalist from the Sydney Olympics in cycling, Scott McGrory. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. And, um, you know, I guess we should always, when we introduce me, um, only think about it as you're saying it then, to remind people that I won my gold medal with my teammate, Brett Aitken. So I should always give Brett a shout out that, uh, yep, I couldn't have done it on my own. Um, He might've been able to do it on his own. So I'll certainly give Brett a shout out. (laughs) Absolutely. Of course, uh, yourself and Brett winning the men's Madison. First ever time the men's Madison was run at the Olympics. And I love it. See, that's the humility. That's the thing I love about Olympic gold medalists. When you're that good, you can afford to actually be humble and modest. And that's something that we love about you. Scott, of course, you've also been a superstar commentator in recent times with the Seven Network, not just doing the summer games, but the winter games as well. So your role in cycling is just profound. Now, can I ask you, with Jai Hindley just taking out the Giro d'Italia, the second ever Aussie to win a Grand Tour mm. after Cadell Evans' Tour de France 2011, how do you feel as someone who's part of the Aussie cycling family? You must be just wrapped for Jai. Absolutely. We are all buzzing at the moment and typically not everyone obviously within the cycling community or very few know Jai personally. I do, luckily. Mm. Super nice guy. Really, really nice young man. Um, So happy for him simply because he's a nice guy, you know, firstly, to go and win something like this. And it's it's not to be overstated how important this is. You know, everybody thinks about the Tour de France. This is not the Tour de France, but it is the second biggest race in the world. We've only had Cadell Evans win a Grand Tour before, so a three-week major uh, stage race. There's only three of them, Spain, Italy, and France every year. Mm-hmm. And he tried to win the Giro as well and couldn't do it. So it shows you how tough it is to, to be able to win these races. Um, and, you know, Jai, for him to, to win the, the Tour of Italy, I was actually on radio this morning um, and they were asking about it. I said, well, okay, they wanted to know how significant it is. I said, well, let's, it's like, let's look at tennis. You've got four Grand Slams every year, okay? If yeah. you were to choose one, if you could only ever win one Grand Slam, oh. 90% of the players, if not more, would say Wimbledon. 
Yep. Wimbledon's a big one, but it's still just a Grand Slam, the same as the French, the US and the Australian Open, mm. but it has that extra bit about it. And that's what the Tour de France is. So yeah. the Giro is like a Grand Slam, you know, it's a Grand Tour, but the Tour de France just has that little bit more attached to it. Mm. Um, and it's not a lot. Within the world of cycling, we know to win a Grand Tour or a three-week race is incredibly um, significant. And there are very few athletes in the world that are capable of of sustaining that kind of you know those sorts of energy levels for three weeks straight it's just extraordinary and for an aussie to come along and do it at 26 and immediately you start thinking about the tour de france can he do that maybe can he try and win that in the next couple of years and i think if the course suits him he certainly really could have a crack at that so we're all wrapped to to answer your question briefly the australian cycling community is absolutely over the moon and stoked with jai's performance I bet. 26 years old, as you say, from Perth. Tremendous stuff, Jai Hindley. Yeah. You know, best part of, well, 21 and a half years ago, the Australian cycling family was wrapped for you and Brett Aitken. 21st of September, year 2000, Dunk Grey Velodrome in Bass Hill. First ever time the men's Madison has run and you win with Brett and you do it in fine style. Can I ask, Scott, when you get introduced, you know, you do all the Channel 7 coverage and you do a lot of uh, corporate speaking, when you're introduced as Olympic gold medalist Scott McGrory, what does it feel like, you know, for your heart and for your mind? Well, immensely proud to to know that we've been able to achieve something that when you really break it down, you talk about stats and numbers, it you know, and most athletes, most athletes I think are quite humble. Um, and especially with cycling, because yeah. it's a type of sport where if you if you put things out there, get big-headed um, and carry on like a bit of a twat, it's easy for other competitors to help you lose in future because of the tactics within cycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, if you, if you think about the Tour de France and you've got a breakaway group up the road and everyone wonders whether it'll make it or not to the finish, now, if you're a really disliked rider and you've gone into that breakaway group, there might be riders in that group that just don't want to put in 100% to try and help you achieve mm-hmm. something. So it's, it's easy... Mm-hmm to help you lose in races if you get a bit ahead of yourself. Um, so typically yep. most uh, elite cyclists are, I think, fairly humble in that regard. So um, and I think I looked it up from Australian perspective. Now, someone might be able to go into finer detail. It was really challenging. I had the Channel 7 researchers even on this one and they struggled to work it out. Mm. Um, just the what the actual percentage is of Australians that have ever lived within the modern Olympic period that yeah, have yeah. won a gold medal. And it's something like 0.0002% of all Australians to ever live have won a gold medal at the Olympic Games. You think, wow, okay, that is pretty special, isn't it? Oh, mate, it's incredibly, and even from a world population point of view, you know, I mean, you think of the billions upon billions upon billions of people that have lived since 1896 and how few have been able to win an Olympic gold. I mean, it it is rarefied air. Look, Scott, I mean, your story, I remember interviewing you best part of 10 years ago and hearing you speak. I was just a kid during the Olympics, so I suppose I didn't really... Uh, have a full understanding of it at the time i knew your olympic gold medals but the backstory is i mean look it's it's it is an extraordinary story and you know extraordinary in in terms of the way that you are able to inspire people with what you went through um and i can only imagine how uh not easy this is to to talk about but the the inspiration that you you give through this story is is amazing 
Scott, so uh, 11, 10 weeks before the Olympic Games in Sydney, um, you lost, you and your uh, wife Donna lost your 11-week-old son, Alexander. Scott, um, how were you able to uh, deal with that period of time in your life? How were you able to do that? Well, I still ask myself that question. Um, and, yeah. you know, throughout my corporate speaking times, engagements, there's always someone in the audience that comes up and say, oh, that really, you know, I felt for you. We had a situation, we lost a child. So there are a lot of people having to deal with these things. And the question always is from their colleagues and from mine and, and from the spectators, how did you do that? How did you get, get through that? Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of things. And so obviously it wasn't just... In our, in our situation, um, when Alexander had passed away, it had been a really tough six months leading up to that as well. So for me personally as an athlete, I'd had very much uh, interrupted preparation and I was going back and forth to Europe while Donald was sort of in and out of hospital. And uh, so my preparation wasn't anywhere near as good as I thought it should be. And when he passed away... That was for me. That was that was the end of it. So okay, well, I can't do this anymore. You know, I felt like I hadn't been able to train as much as I would have liked anyway, and then I could yeah. not see how I was going to be able to train to the level that you need to to be competitive at the Olympic Games. And yeah. after the funeral, um, Donna actually said to me, "All right, we're going to go back to Europe." I said, "Why?" What's the point? You know, I, I just don't mm. see how I'm going to have the capacity to to commit to that level. She said, no, we have to try. We have to try mm. because if we get to the end of the year and you haven't even tried to go to the Games, Alexander will still not be with us um, and mm. you won't have gone to the Games and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So we got on the plane and went back to Europe and you know, she, she claimed that she would do absolutely everything. I would just have to get up, get on the bike and ride each day. And I was going to competitions and races and things as well as training. And you know, so I guess the, the short answer is she was probably the main person that got me motivated and helped me to move forward. And, and then it was just family, friends, work colleagues, my teammates, all just understanding that it was a tough time and just yeah. treading lightly and offering support whenever they, whenever they thought they could help in, in any way. Um, and just day by day, you know, one foot in front of the other. Mm. Uh, there were days where I trained incredibly hard and felt inspired mm. by the situation we'd gone through. And that would be followed up the next day by about, you know, to go out and do a, a four-hour ride, I'd get 20 minutes in. And it was one day I had to pull over on the side of the road um, because I realised I was crying too much and I couldn't really see the traffic and I'd probably get hit by a yeah. car. Um, so I just yeah. pulled over, composed myself and then went home. And it was a 20-minute training ride. It was supposed to be four hours in the hills. Um, so it was uh, this this roller coaster of emotions all the way through. And um, I guess I was um, stubborn or tenacious enough to at least keep mm -hmm. getting up each day. Um, and with the support of others around me, uh, it was I was able to continue. But the big kicker, though, was throughout that entire process, I'm still physically doing something i'm training i still yeah. wasn't sure if it was going to be enough to be competitive and my um um i had i had an enormous amount of self-doubt that was starting to creep in 
And yeah. there were, you know, when you're a fair way out from the games, you think, oh, I haven't done enough. But look, there's still time. And then you get closer and closer. Yeah. Oh, there's still time. And then a few weeks out, there's no more time. I don't, I don't think I've done enough. And I just fell off the cliff mm-hmm. mentally, fell off the cliff as I was getting closer to the games, thinking that, you know, this is an incredible opportunity to at least be at another Olympics. It was my second. Uh, it had been 12 yeah. years between Olympic births. I had won a bronze medal at the Olympics in Seoul in 1988. And mm. after that is when I actually had some self-belief that I could be an Olympic gold medalist. I had to, it took me as an 18-year-old kid to win a bronze to realise, hey, maybe I can win a gold. Um, and I hadn't really yeah. thought about it before that. Uh, and I didn't get another gig for another 12 years. I missed out on the 92 team. I missed out on the 96 team. And then the, 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 the Madison came in for 2000. So my event, what, which is what I was an expert at outside of the games, mm. um, that came in and the national coach then asked me to come and get involved. So 12 years on, I've got another chance. It's a home Olympic games. Um, and I, it's mm. not lost on me, the significance of for any athlete to even just compete at a home Olympic games, but to compete and win. That's certainly something that I understand is extremely special um, that I'll always have. So, yeah, you had all these things going on that made it uh, an incredible moment. Typically, it should have been an incredible moment in sport, yet I was racked with self-doubt, absolutely racked with self-doubt leading right up into the the day of of the race. Can you tell us, when did you make that decision to definitely compete? I I know your great partner in Cry Bread Aiken... And he also, I mean, he, he had a tough run of it. Um, his daughter, Ashley, uh, in the lead up to the games, diagnosed with Rett syndrome. And, and then Ashley then passed away in 2009. So there's tremendous tragedy, um, but you gentlemen being able to survive. You know, I think that's the biggest thing in life when, when things get as dark as that, to be able to survive. Uh, and you both have done it to your supreme credit, yourself and Brett Aitken. Um, when did you make the call, yep, I am going to compete? And then obviously we'll talk about the self-doubt, but when did you, was it a couple of weeks out you said, yep, I'm in? Uh, I, I think I was always in. It was, yeah, okay. I was always in. So when it came down to the Madison itself, you know, Brett and I, but I was, I had been brought into the team specifically for that event. So it was going to be me to make a decision um, to, to not do it. You know, other, yeah, otherwise, right. you know, the decision had already been made that I was going to be racing. Um, but I still, um, as we're getting closer, I, you know, I was starting to get a little bit concerned about whether I was going to be good enough or not. And mm. maybe, uh, I'm not sure if it was the right thing or not. Um, you know, hindsight, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, clearly it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't until the morning of the race that I then understood the the gravity of the situation with the mindset that I had been in over the previous few weeks that, okay, it's now race day and I haven't said that I'm struggling. I haven't told anyone that I'm really, really struggling here, but it's now race day. So I'm now committed. I'm in, I'm fully in and I have to go and do this race. And yet I'm thinking I'm not going to be good enough. I haven't trained anywhere near enough over these last six, eight months, Um, you know, traveling back and forth to Europe more than I normally would because of the situation in the hospital so there was uh, an enormous amount of fear, I guess, started to creep in that I'm now going to embarrass Brett, myself, and everybody that's put anything into helping us get to there. Um, 
So the morning of the race, I woke up in the Olympic Village, looked across to Brett in his bed, and I just felt this sense of um, responsibility. I was overwhelmed that I felt that I had to apologise to him because I felt that morning that I was going to let him down and we were going to lose later on that day because I wasn't going to be good enough. So I whispered, uh, I'm sorry, mate, and then paused, waited to see if he heard me, and he didn't say anything. So then I got out of bed, that woke him up, and then we went and had breakfast and we started the process and he wasn't aware of it. And it's interesting because I feel that it's a little bit gutless as well because if I was really genuine, I would have tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, buddy, look, I've got a bit of an issue I need to talk to you about and then apologised and then he would have had a chance to replace me or say, look, you know what, we're fine, we're going to get through this. So I felt like I had to say something, but I didn't say it loud enough to make sure he heard it. Um, well, I think the last thing anyone could ever call you is gutless, Scott. <laughs> I think that it it's it's divine intervention that no one heard nothing and you went out there and raced and won. Mm. Um, what about the lead up that day? So, okay, so you're going out breakfast. What happens next? How, how are you dealing with the demons? What, what, what is that like between getting there and getting to the <laughs> velodrome? Yeah, interesting. Uh Interesting day because we have our breakfast, we start talking about tactics and you know, reminding ourselves of what our, our game plan is going to be. And so many of the competitors that day, I, I knew all of them. I knew every rider in the race pretty well. I knew their strengths and their weaknesses. I've raced with them. Several of them were actual teammates of mine in my European professional road team. Yeah. You know, so I know these, I, I knew these riders very, very well. So I'm educating Brett as well through all this process that, you know, you know, and he, look, he's a very um, intelligent rider also, so he knows what to do. And then we got kitted up to go for a road ride just to loose, loosen the legs off and went out for just an easy sort of 45 minutes or an hour stroll. And the whole time talking about tactics, you know, the Swiss are going to do this, watch out for the Spanish, they'll always sit back and just at the right moments, you've always got to, after every sprint, after a big effort, make sure you look over your shoulder, see who might be going on the attack, jump straight onto them so we don't have to chase, be ahead of the game the whole way. So we go through all these sorts of tactics. And... I remember thinking, I know all of this. I know I'm capable, typically, I know I'm capable to, yeah. to do all of this. And tactics was my, my bag. I was really good yeah. uh, in, in you know, tactically trying to read a race and work things out ahead of time. Yet I was still thinking, oh, mate, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're just you're dribbling here. You know, mm. you, you're, not, you're not fit enough. Um, and I was kind of bluffing, mm. you know telling him, I, you know, I wanted to make sure he was as confident as he could possibly be. So I was, yeah. at this point, I guess I'm trying to pep him up to make sure that he's really ready and, you know, psyched up for this race. But in the meantime, I wasn't. I was far from it. <laughs> and then we went to the track, got there about two hours before, hour 45 or so before the race, um, and saw our families. So Brett has mm. said that, you know, he knew when he saw his daughter Ashley and she smiled, he said he knew then that, we were going to win. And Gee. and I saw my family and Donna and thought, oh my God, I am gonna I'm gonna let them down. This is gonna be terrible. So, you know, put on a brave face. Oh yep, fantastic. We're going well. And everybody else felt that they were super confident in us. And then we went down into the track. So down the tunnel into the center of the velodrome. And then I walked through there, just racked with guilt, having actually seen my family. And sat down 
in the Australian compound and thought to myself, okay, it's now going to happen. I'm going to go on the track and start this bike race. I can't start with this attitude. What am I going to do? And, and to that point, you ask, you know, how do you get to, to, to that point in time? And it was my family, it was my friends, it was my teammates. All these people were just encouraging me on that path to where I was then. And in sitting in the middle of a stadium of 6,000 people, I was incredibly alone at that moment because there was only one person that still needed to be convinced that they could do this. And that was me. And there's no one there to, to do that other than me. So I picked up yeah. my chair and I walked away from the Australian compound and went and sat on my own in the middle of the track. And I'm a pretty realistic and practical kind of guy. And it's funny the things you think about. And whenever I think about doing that, I wonder if there was anyone or how many people of the 6,000 in the stadium watched me walk across to the centre of the track and just sat there on my own wondering, mm. what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> What's he, should he be warming up? What's he doing out there? Yeah. And um, so, you know, I'm 50 metres away from anyone else and, and just yeah. sitting there on my own. And But what I was doing was I was giving myself the ultimate pep talk. Yeah. And, and I was abusive of myself and my behaviour and my attitude up until that point. And I have sort of described it as, um, you know, if you're, say, a footy fan, AFL or whatever it may be, or NRL, doesn't matter. It's kind of like that old school country footy grand final <laughs> at halftime and the rough as guts coach is telling his side that is behind that they still have a chance but they've got to pull their freaking fingers out and actually step up here and, and you can imagine the language that, yeah. that that country footy coach would be saying. And that was me. That was me talking to me about pulling my head out of my ass and just getting out there and having a real crack at it. And um, I, I then I'm being practical. So okay, right. So I've sort of convinced myself that look, it's going to happen. I'm going to go out there. We're going to give this a crack, right? What are we? Where are we at? Where are we at? Okay, right. So mm, you probably think you're about eighty percent sitting there, about eighty percent of your fitness. Okay, okay. Hey, imagine if you could win an Olympic gold medal at eighty percent. That's unheard of. You know, there's obviously there's no official stats to see what level of fitness you're at. Okay, but this is just what yeah. I'm thinking in my head. I thought totally. You know what? All of the because I knew all of the, the competitors, they all knew my story as well. Okay, but mm -hmm. it's an Olympic final. It's in Sydney. They're not thinking, oh, hey, we better go a bit easy because Scott's son passed away and he probably should win this. They're not thinking that. They're thinking, stuff him. We're here to win. You know, terrible situation, but we are not going to do anything to let him have any sort of advantage here, and they're going to try and beat you. Um, and I thought, oh, well, okay, if I'm at 80%, this would be an extraordinary story. If I can actually still win this thing at 80%, how cool would that be? Um, yeah. And I thought, and you, you, know, you think silly things. You know, I thought, okay, look, if, if this was, say, if it's a gunfight, my competitors all have guns and I've only got a knife, well, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to be slashing yeah. throats. I'm going to be doing whatever I can, <laughs> just dodging bullets, you know, Matrix kind of style to get, yes. to get this achievement, to get the result. Now, when... I did my very first corporate talk about the Olympic Games. It was for Jerry Ryan from Jayco Caravans. He's a good friend of yeah. mine. He asked me to talk at a dealer conference. He knew the Olympic story. So he, you know, just from conversations as a friend. Yeah. So he asked me if I would speak to, to his dealers. So it was the first time that I'd actually sat down and thought about 
what that Olympic process was. So it was then that I went through that whole self-talk for the first time that I actually really thought about what I did to change my mindset to get ready for the race. And because when it happens, it just happened. You just, okay, you need a solution. You're not feeling great. How are you going to yeah. get the outcome you desire? And you go through the process, whatever that may be. Um, and then we started the race. When I thought about it later, I went back, uh, I picked up the chair and walked back into the Australian compound and then started my warm up. got on the home trainer and started to get myself prepared. And then I could think back to what I was feeling and thinking at the time. And it was complete confidence. So I warmed up. 45 minutes before the race, completely confident that we were going to win because we were the best team there. And I was Mm. convinced that we were, I knew that we were. And when I went up onto the track and this does sound a bit corny, but I went up onto the track and I looked at all the other riders that were already lined up. And I thought to myself, you guys are suckers. You don't even realize it, but you're only racing for silver. That's fantastic. An hour earlier, I thought, I was a complete loser. I had no chance. And I I didn't think it's not it's not a conscious thought that yeah. I've gone through this process. I wasn't on the start line thinking, oh gee, you know, lucky I, you know, had that talk to myself. Yeah. You're just doing it. And then it's years later that I went back and thought about it to do prepare this talk for, for Jerry and yeah. thought, holy shit, that was incredible. That was extraordinary how I was able to turn that around. Because we dominated. We absolutely yeah. dominated the race. And you talk about 80% fitness, 100% fitness. Look, I, I wasn't at 80%. We couldn't have dominated the race the way we did if I was at 80%. Yeah. So yeah. clearly I was better than I thought I was in terms yeah. of physical um, preparation. But we completely dominated um, clearly the best team on the track and we won. Um, yet, yeah. yet I was apologising for the loss that morning to Brett. Um it's amazing when you think about what you're, you're able to achieve. Well, it just so is, Scott. And the fact that, you know, subconsciously through giving that talk to yourself, you're able to flick this switch where, as you say, you go from thinking you're the biggest loser in the world to go and thinking these, no one here can even get a gold. They're going for silver because we're going to take this out and win. And you did. I mean, you know, and it's so interesting. You know, I've heard Roger Federer speak about this, the fact that physically all the players on the tennis tour are about the same. The difference is mental. And you look at what Roger Federer can do. What advice would you have, Scott, based on your tangible lived experience? This isn't something you read in an inspirational book. This is something you did for yourself and won a gold medal, the greatest honor in sport and, you know, right up there in life. Um, What advice would you have for people listening to this who are in that, in the absolute you know, um, depths of despair with regards sporting performance, how can they get out of it? What, what advice would you have? Oh, um, yeah, it's interesting when you, because obviously I've been through it. I lived it myself. Um, so yeah. I have my own personal experience as to what got me going again, but it mm. took me years to actually understand what I actually had done. Um, so perhaps I should have written it all down to, to have a better understanding of it. That's a, um it's hard to get that self-belief. You know, once you start yeah. to lose it, it is hard to get it back. Um, but I, I think you just have to try. You just have to yeah. just get up each day. And as long as um, you hear it all the time, you know, it's 
as long as you've done your best, as long as you've had a go, you should be proud of yourself. And there are a lot of people that that, that still won't be proud of their achievement because they didn't win because they were going there to win. Yeah. And one of the thing, main things that I really learned that probably helped me when I got to Sydney was when I was first in the national team and we won the bronze at the Olympic Games in the team pursuit, during that yeah. period, um, we were racing against the Soviet Union and the East Germans. Okay, yeah. so in the six months or so leading up to those Olympic Games, our coach kind of drummed it into our heads that third would be our gold. So a bronze medal would be the goal for us because we're not going to be able to beat the Russians and the Soviets yeah. and the East Germans. And without saying it, you know, he's implying that these they're superhuman, there's a medical program, we're probably not going to be able to beat them. But, yeah. hey, you know, like if we can get bronze and be the best of the rest, that's a great achievement. And that's exactly what we achieved. So we got what we wanted, which was bronze. And when I was out of the national team and went on to be a professional racing on the road and the track in Europe, my process changed. So as a kid, we trained kind of out of fear. You were picked because you're good enough to be in the team. But if you didn't train hard, then you'd get dropped from the team. So you're going out there each day just to not get in trouble and to not get dropped from the team kind of thing. But when I became a professional, you know, I was getting paid to be in a team. They felt that I had enough worth for them to pay me money to be in the team. So then it was up to me to be the best I could be. And my process changed. I started to understand what real success is, and that's you know falling in love with the process. It's not the end result. We always had that as a goal, and that'll guide you towards where you want to go. But during that phase when I wasn't in the national team anymore, I'd forgotten about the Olympic Games. I couldn't get back into the team. So to be an Olympic gold medalist, well, that was a distant memory. So I had to, okay, what is the goal now? If there's not a gold medal I'm chasing, what am I going to do in this sport? And it's like, you know what? Anything, everything. Let's try and win a race next week. Let's try and win a criterion. Let's try and win a road race. Can I get over that final climb, not being a climber, can I get over that final climb and be the fastest of the riders left in the bunch and win that road stage? There's a nice goal for me to get through. So then it became trying to be the best I can be every day, getting up and eating correctly, training hard, and just trying to be a professional sportsman. And then the results just came. And it became an easy process because I'd fallen in love, love with it. You know, it was, there was no sacrifices then. I didn't need that piece yeah. of chocolate cake. Um, whereas before I would have, it would have been, you know, I needed some sugar. Oh, I feel crap. You know, the coach has been yelling at me. So give me a chocolate cake and a, you know, chocolate milk. Yeah. Whereas as a professional, it, was, it wasn't a sacrifice at all. I didn't need it. I didn't crave it. It was, no, I need to lose a couple of kilograms if I'm going to get over that final hill to be the fastest sprinter left in the bunch. Um, so I think it's, yeah, falling in love with the process and not putting too much emphasis on the end goal. Um, I think that's where anxiety and pressure comes from because if you don't achieve it, then you're just a failure. And that's not yeah. necessarily the case. So, you know, one of one of my proudest moments as an athlete it has been completely lost because it was at an event back here in Australia. It was a Madison. Yeah. And I had a crash in Europe and fractured five ribs and two vertebrae. Had eight weeks off the bike. And then the organiser of this other race, I was back home in Australia, the organiser of this other race asked me if I would ride. This is a couple of years after the Olympics. And I said, oh, I haven't I basically broke my back, you know, a month and a half ago. 
um, haven't been training. He said, oh, please, please, please. You know, we just, we don't have any big name riders. So really like, you know, the Olympic champion to, to come back and do it again. So, uh, okay. So I, I did. Trained for about a week and a half. Eight weeks off the bike, a uh, week and a half of training and led to the halfway point. It was a Madison. And at the halfway point, I was in first position. And at the end, like my fitness just completely failed me towards the end. And I finished third. So I still finished on the podium. And I look back at that third place and think, you know what? Jesus, that was a gutsy bloody ride. I broke my yeah. back two months before that and still got third. Everyone else saw that as the Olympic champion, you know, long in the tooth, crested the wave and got his ass kicked. Yeah. And I look at it and think, no, that was actually one of the best rides I've ever put in, that ride. You know? <laughs> Isn't that great? You can see it with that sort of clarity. It sounds like you really had that gear shift in, in mindset and you're able to to see it in that way. I mean, you know, far be it for me to say, I mean, what you're able to endure and survive as a, as a father, as a human, let alone as, as an Olympian, just amazing. And you telling your story has had such powerful impact. I know that literally there's been instances where you've told your story and it's helped people that have been in their own tumult listening to reach out for help. And so you literally, by telling your story, helping to to save other people's lives. Um, it's incredible, Scott. Um, mate, now you have uh, two daughters. I know that your eldest daughter as an absolute soccer star, I think might have been player <laughs> player of the round last week. Can you tell us about your girls, mate? You just must be such a proud dad of Alex, your beautiful angel, and then your two daughters. Um, tell us about them, Scott. Yeah, so that's Maddie, Madalena. Um, her middle name is Alexandra, so named after her big brother. Oh, and she got best on grounds at the Bendigo Women's Soccer League in her game uh, last week playing for, for Strathdale. So yeah, super proud of, of her and her little sister Leilani. So there's six years between them because we, Alexander wasn't our only, um, I guess, you know, tragic story. So there is a, an age gap between these two. And Leilani was playing AFL um, and she's new to the sport. So she's playing under Good 13s. Honest. And, yeah. you know, when you watch the, it's always always entertaining when you watch the country footy scores when they pop up on, on the telly and they show, you know, the, the Kyneton versus whatever. And these, yeah, well, yeah. this was one of those. So she was in the winning <laughs> team and the score at the end was 120 to zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. That's one of those great, great scores that pop up on the screen from, from a country footy match. So under under yeah. 13 uh, girls Bendigo AFL league. And as that number starts to grow, you, you, you switch from supporting your child and your side and they're going really well to, oh, gee, I hope they can score at least a point, you know, maybe a goal. Yeah. And at the end, I felt terrible for that side. It felt absolutely terrible for them. I thought, poor things didn't score a single point. Yeah. But, oh, and, she, and Leilani actually said that uh, the, the team, her teammates, they started talking about it, saying, oh, hey, look, you know, should we, you know, maybe even just, <laughs> even just run one through, right? You know, run yeah. one through <laughs> just to give them a Rush point. Behind. Rush it behind. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, they, of course, they didn't, which is the right thing to do because, <laughs> hey, it's competitive. No, give them hey. nothing. 
That's a percentage booster. Yeah. A, um, now, what about your career? I mean, you and Anna Mears were the dynamic duo with all your cycling commentary for the Summer Games. Then you did Winter Olympics as well. How are you enjoying the role in the commentary box, Scott? You're a natural at it. You must be loving it. You and Anna, two Aussie golden champs. <laughs> oh, thank you. Look, I, I do love it. I really do enjoy that. Of, of all the things that I do now, mm. uh, and I have some pretty interesting jobs and bits and pieces that I do. That's the one that I really get into. You know, obviously any sport doesn't matter what it is. Cycling has been my thing. The Winter Olympics for seven this year was the first time I'd gone outside of cycling for a, a major event like that, an Olympic Games. Yeah. Um, and that was with speed skating, a long track speed skating, which is really similar to track cycling anyway, which is why seven threw that one at me. Mm. I don't know if it would have mattered, but um, because you're not saying you're not using the same sort of jargon as you would in cycling compared to speed skating anyway, but the similarities was extraordinary. Um, yeah. And I loved it. I love learning about the athletes and I like understanding how your, your job is not just to call the race and make that somewhat entertaining, but to educate the audience, especially for the Olympic games and whether yeah. it's uh, summer or winter for me, you are there to to bring the audience along with you and mm. you can overdo that you know by going into too many stats and particular things to try and educate the audience you know 10 years of knowledge in the next five minutes yeah. and that just that's overbearing um so it's picking what you typically for me i'll look at some of the, the backstories of the athletes and i look for what i think stands out as something that i'm interested in oh that's an interesting yeah. little tidbit you know so i'll then put that in but you don't want to do that with every every athlete. Otherwise, it becomes you just you know you're throwing all these different things. Like I got a movie reference in every day during the Winter Olympics. Yeah. Um, you know one of one of hey, one of the competitors' names was Gilmore. So happy Gilmore got a run. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Is what it is one of his nicknames. So there was an easy segue to say that one of his nicknames is Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, if if and this was a little thing that um, that Stephen Bradbury was my co-commentator. Yeah. He laughed. He absolutely loved this. So I, I said, you know, it's Happy Gilmore. Um, and I said, if Rod Schneider was here, he would say, you can do it. Yeah. So for anyone that's listening that doesn't know what I'm talking about, he's in every one of Adam Sandler's movies and that's yeah. his character. He just says that. You can do it. Yeah. And Bra and Steve Bradbury, he just laughed and said, oh, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we just had a good old laugh about that. Um, but then you're not going to do that in the next rounds. Like the next race comes out, the next heat, okay, yeah. you change it up a little bit. So I really enjoy the craft of that, making it yeah. lighthearted, funny, serious when it needs to be. Don't get bogged down in stats and numbers and figures because it's a general audience, particularly with the Olympics. Mm. Um, if it's a, a world championships and you're doing a live streaming or a national championships, you know that the audience are hardcore fans of that sport. Okay, yeah. throw in some more stats, a few more details about what gear ratios they're riding and tyre pressures and all these sorts of things. Um, so I really enjoy that, you know, understanding it and, and learning the craft and, and delivering. So hopefully I'm doing a reasonable job of that. Well, and better than reasonable, I can assure you, no, you've got that X factor and you genuinely make it engaging for the audience, entertaining, plus you bring the credibility of being an Olympic gold medalist. You and Anna were just a really nice uh, tag team, you know. We had a good time. Um, we had a really good time. So she hadn't done much commentary before. This was actually yeah. her first real go. I was We, we did a, a, uh, was a World Cup um, together the year before as a bit of a trial run. Um, yeah. So fairly new to it, but she's such a natural. 
such a natural yeah. at it. And the road events were the things that she, that's not her sport. You know, she was a, a track sprinter. So there were times when something would come up, and this is the what you don't see, um, obviously, on, on the screens. But, you know, when we're in commentary, I'll be able to point to a stat or something that I've written down mm-hmm. and say, you know, point to her to say, you know, you say that. This is yours. You say it. Um, yeah. So then that, you know, she's saying something that all the hardcore road cycling fans would be like, oh, okay, Anna knows her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you do that to help Teamwork. her. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. once she said it and once you've read it, she's learned it then anyway. So now she knows it regardless. So for the next time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're building a team. It is a team. It's not one commentator trying to outdo the other one. We're there, like Brett and I were in the Madison mm-hmm. to get the result. And the result is to have a, a good call that everybody enjoys. Absolutely. Well, you're the modern day Phil Liggett. <laughs> Phil's still going and he's still going strong, but I think the bat might just be slowly changing uh, hands to hopefully. Scott Magori and Anamirs. Uh, yeah, Scott, uh, tell us, um, in terms of the technology aspect of cycling, I mean, as you said, your Olympic debut as a teenager, 1988 in Seoul, the way you've seen technology in cycling evolve over those years to now in the cutting edge of uh, modern Olympics as a commentator, how have you seen it evolve? Oh, there's been so much of it. So those first Olympics, I was riding on a steel, lightweight steel welded frame for mm. the old old steelies, you know, which beautiful bike. I'd love to have to to still have that frame. Mm. And then now it's these beautiful monocoque carbon fiber frames, you know, the amazing pieces of machinery. And and in terms of that level of technology, the times have just gotten incredibly faster because of mm. obviously the training, physiology, you know, things have evolved. But then in terms of equipment, the machines just go through the air so much faster and it, it takes less energy uh, to, to push a bike of today's standards compared to what we used to ride on. Um, yeah. And then you combine all the other you know, advances in, in training and, and nutrition. I mean, even uh, you know, physio- uh, psychology is something that we never spoke about back in the day. I actually got, I had an incident. I didn't go to the psychologist one day at the AIS because I had crashed out training a few days before, landed on my knee. So I'd split my knee open and I'd had a couple of days off the bike. So the coach booked in an appointment with the psychologist and I didn't go. And he got really upset because I didn't go. But the reason I didn't go is because I needed to go to the, the physio. <laughs> it was my knee that was the problem. But he, his, he, he thought I was just trying to get days off training. So I just refused <laughs> to go. Um, so that's the way we treated it. If you, and if you went to the to the psychologist, then often back then it was seen as a weakness that you were showing that you weren't hard enough, weren't strong enough, and the coaches, the staff, or your competitors, or your, even your teammates that you're yeah. fighting for positions in a in a say a four man team pursuit team, they yeah. may see that as a weakness that you're you're soft, you can't do it. Whereas it's the opposite now. Like we should be, you know, working yeah. with them so much more to get the best out of it ourselves. Um, so yeah, that, that, there's some some real changes within that, but then I think even so, from the from the audience perspective, just watching Tour de France is a great example. All the numbers you see, the heart rates of the riders, the power outputs, things like that. So it's much more engaging spectator sport now because of the data and the technology that's being used. So that's been a massive thing. Not quite there for consistent onboard cameras, but that's where I hope we will go because. To get actually in the peloton, you know, and hear the you know the yells and the screams and the pushes and the brakes rubbing and all the things that are going on and the shoulder pushing, that's next level for spectator engagement. So if we can get that more consistent, 
going forward, then I think that'll be a, a massive one. Um, but yeah, it's a sport of technology. You know, it, the bikes, the equipment. We actually took a step back in the '90s. The the bikes themselves, the designs were amazing. Some of the most spectacular machines were being produced, and then the governing body took a step back and said, "Look, we're getting a little bit too space space age here," and then put in some stricter rules. And we're now really only trying to just catch back up to where we were back in the '90s with bike technology and, and frame design and, and shape. That's really interesting you say that. And then obviously as as a commentator, I'm sure that with more and more of that that data and analysis, that's helping to inform what you're able to do, you know, with your presentation. Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. For, for me, and I'll talk to – so when you talk to a writer, it's one of the things that's changed now after an event. We used to talk about how you felt, why you attacked when you did, what you were noticing of the competitors and the facial expressions – the riders now, post-race, they talk about how much power output they were putting out on the climb and whether they thought they could sustain that to the top of the hill or not. So they backed off slightly and then rode back to the group over the top of the climb. And it's all about numbers. It's about data. Um, so it's a very different conversation now. But I can take from that those conversations and get some of that information and then just deliver that in a way that's meaningful for the audience. So it becomes another little tool that you can use um, not everybody knows what 450 watts means of power output. No one knows. Who, who would know how much power you put through a bike? Um, yeah. But you can talk, you know, a track sprinter might do 2,500 watts of power when they're doing their flying 200-metre qualifying time. You can say, well, you know, that would power, you know, a, a LED television for for 30 minutes or something, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. You know, just, you can, there's all these little things that are happening from the, from the data information that um, the riders will, will use differently to what I would use to then educate the audience better. Extraordinary stuff, Scott. Honestly, it's been a great honour chatting with you. Um, when you first told me your story many years ago, it really did have an impact upon me, and I'm, I'm so grateful for you coming on the show. I think that people... Listen to this, you you know, I think you will have changed uh, some people's lives by by expressing what you have, not just in a sporting sense, but in a more uh, deep and profound sense in terms of their lives. Scott, how can people get in, in touch with you in terms of, um, you know, with corporate work? I know you've you've got a lot on your plate already, but, you know, if people are, are keen to have you come and, and engage with their corporate or their sport organisation and share the tips and tricks to what it takes to win an Olympic gold medal, how can they get in touch, Scott? Instagram and Facebook are the two social medias. So, yeah, you can certainly reach out through either of those. And get in touch because, as I say, I think it's got, you know, incredible potential to reach people. Um, and, of course, we um, we see you on Channel 7. You've got the Commonwealth Games as well? Yeah, Com Games coming up. Looking forward to that, you know, just to get back with the team and, and to see the other co-commentators because, you know, whether it's Andrew Gaze or well, there's no basketball in Com Games, but, um, you know, Gazy and um, Dave Colbert and, yeah. you know, Tams and Lewis and all these these uh, you know Joanna, good friends with Joanna Griggs, yeah. and you ha you share these moments every two years basically, mm. um, and we've got we're still laughing about things that happened in Rio, uh, <laughs> you know behind the scenes in Rio. So catch up with someone like Joe Griggs and Gian Rooney, and oh my god, I can't believe that we did this and we did that. So yeah, it's just a really nice time for friendship as well from from our perspective totally. to catch up with friends uh, with that you don't get to see very often so mm. looking forward to that and of course the job itself well that takes care of itself it's sport you know mm. live sports amazing I, I much prefer commentating live sport than doing post-produced 
commentary on events. Yeah. That can be a bit of a chore. Yeah. But uh, live sport and in the moment, that's 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 fun. That gets your adrenaline going, whether you're a spectator or a commentator. Amen to that. Scott McGorry, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great honour. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. I'm so excited about this. Finally, we can welcome back to the show our international correspondent, Karma Armani. G'day, Karma. How are you? I'm great, oh. sir. I'm stoked to have you back on. Now, of course, for our listeners from Season 1, they remember you fondly. Uh, you were one of the fan favourites of the Sports Cutting Edge podcast, Karma Armani, who's one of the rising stars of sports technology and throughout the broader sports industry. Karma has been off so far in Season 2 because Karma's been completing a double Masters, if you don't mind, a Masters <laughs> of Business and a Masters of Sports Administration at Ohio University. Now you are all complete. You've graduated. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm an overachiever. What can I say? I can't do it just once. I have to do it twice. That's it. I mean, <laughs> now, Karma, you certainly are. Your achievements are sensational. Uh, born in Lebanon, and you've gone on and you've conquered the world. You've worked with Arsenal Football Club, the Bangladesh Women's Cricket Team, European Lacrosse. And now, having finished your double Masters, you've got a brand new job in the heart of the world, in New York City, Madison Avenue. Where are you working, Karma? I'll be a digital content coordinator for Global Soccer with Sport5, and uh, my main client is going to be Borussia Dortmund. That is so. absolutely huge. Congratulations. That is, it's a testament to how good you are at what you do. The fact that Sport5, which is one of the leading sports agencies in the world, they're bringing you into their headquarters in New York City on Madison Avenue, not far from uh, Rockefeller Center. You are in the cent the epicenter of the world in terms of marketing. You know, have you seen that show Mad Men? You know, the advertising TV yeah. show Mad Men. That's you know Madison Avenue. You're there on Madison Avenue, um, working in sports marketing with the biggest sport in the world, soccer, and Borussia Dortmund, a huge, huge club in soccer. Um, how do you feel about this karma? Your dreams are coming true. You're only a young lady, but you have achieved so much. How does it feel? It's it's really insane. I I haven't processed everything yet. It's already a huge. I don't know how to say this. It's such. I'm so grateful to even have been taken by that agency. I know that they've put a lot of work and a lot of dedication investment in taking me on especially not having a u.s visa not being a u.s national that kind of stuff so um i'm just really grateful for everything and i'm hoping that i'll achieve the expected uh, if not overachieve the expected uh, the expectance Oh, oh wow! I don't I've have got work, no see? doubt. Well, that's well. Hey, if I had a job like that, I'd be speechless too. Because oh, well, there's no doubt you'll you'll achieve what's expected day one. From there, you'll just blitz it, and they'll be like, "Oh my god, this person's amazing!" Um, <laughs> like that's a that's a huge a huge deal, you know. And that's like that's a plum job to get uh, straight out of college, um, having done your double masters. Karma, um, tell us what sort of things will be involved in this role. I mean, digital media and soccer, you know, you've got the most powerful media platform, digital, the most powerful sport in the world, soccer. Um, that's a, a very powerful combination. Well, 
it's a lot about internationalization and bringing new fans to Borussia Dortmund. So mm. it's not just it's about creating the content and following Borussia and t- telling their story in the U.S. and other parts of the world. But it's also making sure that people know what the brand is about, growing the brand and making sure that everybody feels part of the club no matter where they are. So that's going to be my role, creating content that brings people together and make them insane fans of BBB, let's say. (laughs) You know, you are a great example of how dreams can come true. You know, in season one, we were chatting how with your local, um, your college soccer uh, team, the women's soccer team there for the, were they the Bobcats? Am I right? Yes. Bobcats? Yes, the Bobcats. Mike, you're supposed to be a fan. I know, I know. Yes, the Bobcats, I know. Yeah, so, but it literally, in the space of six months, you've gone from doing digital media for the Ohio Bobcats, which are a great college side, but, I mean, now you're dealing with one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world. I mean, in six months, that's that's amazing. It does show that dreams can come true. Um, You've got all the ability in the world, obviously, but the hard work as well. Um, what what advice would you have for young ladies that are listening to this who, who want to follow in your footsteps and make their dreams come true? What advice would you have? Uh, attitude trumps skills. Come up, like show up every day with the right attitude, show that you want to be there and people uh, will notice it. I don't think I've always had the right CV or the right skills, but people know that if I'm going to be there and working on a project, I will give my 100% for it. So I think that's what's helped me get the job, but also get the reputation that I have currently amongst my peers. I know I can go to them for anything and they can come to me for anything. So attitude, attitude, attitude. That's what I, I love that. Attitude trumps skills. Attitude, attitude, attitude. That's the advice for young ladies out there. Um, well done, Karma. I love it. Very... Um, very poignant, very poignant words. Well, we can't wait to watch your stratospheric rise continue. I mean, this is your first job. I can only imagine where your career is going to go. Like, wow. Uh, Please don't add any more pressure. You're, no, you're young, Carmen. Like, how, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm how 23. You're 23 years old. My God. <laughs> like, seriously. I didn't even got out of bed when I was 23. I was still asleep. That's amazing. No, congratulations. You deserve every bit of success you got. Thank you hey, so much. Now, of course, you, as always, bring in the the great cutting-edge sports news from the tech world. Karma, there's something in particular that's caught your eye. Can you tell us about it, please? Yes. I have a couple of questions for you first. So, first, how many subscriptions of anything out there do you pay for right now? Interesting. Um, I've got uh, Apple, like Apple Music. And I've got one with uh, like a news subscription, uh, Netflix, uh, that's three. Uh, let me throw in, there'd be a couple other ones for work. So maybe I'm going to say five, but in terms of media content, really it's only Netflix and that news subscription. Yeah. So I'm not oversubscribed to be honest. Mm. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. And how do you pay for cable or do any of your friends pay for cable? How many people have cut the cord around you? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of cord cutting. Um, I've been lucky. I still have access wherever I am. I always seem to land on my feet with a place that has cable or direct TV satellite already there. So I'm lucky in that sense. But yeah, I've, I've noticed in circles around me, there's been a tremendous amount of cord cutting. And that's been a phenomenon in Australia whereby, so Fox Sports are our main uh, provider of sports content. And, you know, they have the traditional cable service, but then they have a streaming service called KO. And what's happened is a huge amount of their audiences migrated from cable to this streaming service, and then they've brought in a lot of new customers as well. So that's been a huge factor. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, if you ask someone that's in their mid-20s to mid-30s, they might say that they have also like you five to 10 subscriptions, maybe more centered on the media side. And most probably, they're going to watch their live sports at a friend that still has cable. That one friend that everybody knows is on the other side of the city. They'll go watch the Super Bowl with. Um, so it's not really a surprise. And if you look at the statistics in the U.S. alone, there's more than 50 million Americans that actually have cut the cord as of last year or have never had a cable subscription. Yeah. So... It's been a trend that is, has doubled and tripled since 2014, yeah. but now it's kind of stabilizing around that number. So we don't really know what the future of TV is yet, but if you look at the programs that actually have good TV ratings, most of them, nine out of 10, are actually live sports. So that's pretty telling about how people consume uh, their content nowadays. It's more like mobile or um, going live uh, to watch live sport every once in a while by the bar on the TV or at their friends, that one friend yeah. that still has cable, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so there are several sports organizations that are now considering adding to streaming options, which is a completely saturated market right now. If you think of fitness, streaming is almost getting there, right? Yeah. Um, and to reach fans that, you know, where they are consuming most of their content, which is mobile phones, right? Tablets, exactly. mobile phones, you watch YouTube on your phone, you consume content, content on social on your phone, mm -hmm. you watch March Madness on the phone, right? Uh, yeah. Through the app while you're studying or while you're working <laughs> when you're yeah. not supposed to. <laughs> so that's the state right now. And, um, uh, in the U.S., the NFL will launch its own mobile-focused streaming service, which is going to be called NFL Plus. Mm. Super creative. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> and it's going to be coming uh, to your mobile phone as early as July this year, although it has just been teased like January this year. So it's going to be $5 a month, and you're going to get your live in-market games. So if you are in uh, Cleveland, you can, be, you can see the Browns games. Um, these kind of things, but not outside of the market. Um, and it's a shift from the free content that you can get from the NFL.com app or the website. Usually you can watch for free, but now it's going to cost you a little. And it's really up in the air in the terms of what the other uh, media offerings of the NFL are going to look like. It's going to be a big streaming bundle where you get NFL media, NFL films, NFL Plus altogether, or is it going to be offered to different people? And right now, um, you have Apple TV that's rumored to have gotten the deal, but we don't know what the deal is yet. <laughs> but yes. either way, it's going to cost a lot. It's going to be a heavy, heavy price tag. 
Well, and that's it. And and so are you hearing, are the whispers you're hearing from over there in the States that it will be Apple? Because I know there was talk that Amazon might get in on the action, but Apple are looking the favourite from what you can see, Karma? Well, from media reports, it seems that Apple's the favorite, but it really depends on who's willing to pay for the, you know, the, for example, uh, the Sunday ticket uh, program. It has mm. an extra billion dollars to the price tag if it, when it, the um, contract expires. So who's willing to pay for that and who's yeah. willing to bid for it at a higher price, right? And we're seeing more and more sports um, starting to to take space on streaming platforms, Karma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You have FIFA that just launched uh, last month, FIFA Plus, also very creative. and they have uh, it's free but you have to watch ads to like there's some it's ad it's an ad supported platform so technically yeah. you can watch content as much as you want without paying anything but you're going to get the ads uh, mm. popping in every now and then um and they've released it as an app as well so it's mobile based um but the free part is tbd we don't really know if it's going to stay free so that's something to consider and you can watch live soccer games you can watch from the domestic leagues around the world so it's really nice for um, different countries that might not be able to put their domestic league on the map um you can watch there's going to be a match center uh where you can see results and stats from each games so that's going to be the core strategy of fifa with that platform and you can also watch documentaries and archive clips from games but you cannot watch world cup games on them so that's Mm. something to see how they're going to grow that and will world cup games ever be streamed on that platform maybe that will come with a paid offering yeah, you would think so, like that premium service. And it's interesting how, you know, the win is for these sporting leagues, clubs, etc. Like the ability... So, for example, you know, if a, if a sporting league has their own app, Sporting League Plus, um, they're able to then be able to extract data from their consumers, yeah? So it's an opportunity for the harvest. Is that what you're Absolutely. seeing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because they're going to be using the platform in different ways, obviously, but they're going to have to sign up for it, put their, not just their payment details, but there's going to be maybe age restrictions or Mm. um, other data collections and name, email addresses. The email addresses, I think, are a mine of gold for people in data. So... And you're going to be signing up for maybe different streaming platforms associated with one sport or with a different sport. MLB, for example, is trying to partner with the NBA and the NHL to create their own uh, streaming platform, who I'm pretty sure is not going to be called MLB Plus, but we'll (laughs) see. Um, They're facing some some obstacles, though, so it's not going to be there until 2023. It's their Sinclair broadcast group that's going to create their own streaming platform as well. And they have, like, the streaming rights, uh, like, the rights for 14 MLB teams and Mm -hmm. 16 NBA teams, 12 NHL teams. So if they combine, they have a pretty good offering. But MLB, NHL, NBA are trying to do their own. So having a cross sport idea of who's going to watch the NHL, who's going to watch the NBA, who's going to watch um, the MLB all in yeah. one space is going to be even more powerful. Definitely. And and we're seeing that, aren't we, that sort of that concentration with, with in amongst such a fragmented media landscape, we're seeing that need to try and pull resources together. 
I mean, one of the biggest examples of that, we speak of Fox Sports in Australia and America, but the fact that the Murdoch media empire sold off almost everything to Disney back in 2017 because, you know, the, the, the titans of the past are having to coalesce together to try and take on big tech into the future. And we're going to see that even in Australia, Karma, so a situation like Fox Sports, um, you know, their AFL and NRL, so Aussie Rules Football and Rugby League Football, um, those that's the cash cow for them. That's how they make all their money. And so there's now increased competition. Uh, the AFL executives have been in the States in New York City where you are now with your brand new job at Sport 5. They've been meeting with the heavies of Amazon, Apple, um, because there's so much interest now, YouTube, maybe even Facebook, in taking on these AFL Australian sports rights. And so you have this incredible competition between the old world media of Fox Sports and traditional networks in Australia now having to come against uh, these multinational titans. Um, so the competition's immense. So the real winners, Karma, you can say, are the sports leagues because they're cashing in big time. Absolutely. I mean... It's not just about cashing in, it's also reaching new audiences. Serie A, the league in in Italy, are now streaming their games for free in the Middle East. Yes, I mean, including can... the metaverse karma. I was just going to say they did the, <laughs> the metaverse experience as well within that uh, Middle East, North Africa broadcast, mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how successful it was, and I don't know if it's going to be successful on the long term, depending on how they develop it, mm. because it's... One thing to, okay, I'm going to watch a screen within a screen, but um, it's another thing when you have the human touch. I think what COVID really taught us is that human touch is not going anywhere or like human connection live in person is not going anywhere. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how the metaverse comes in in terms of reaching a new audience and connecting with that audience when you're not able to have that in-person feeling. It could be that you're with your friends in the same room and you yeah. have like a geolocation thing going on and you, you can watch the game while doing certain activities to earn rewards or prices, these kind of yeah. things. But uh, yeah. we'll see. I'm very excited for what's coming. That's such an interesting point you make, Karma, because your finger's on the pulse there. I mean, you transit between Europe um, and America. The fact that you're saying that that human experience is still being so highly valued, because often what we see, the trends in Australia follow what happens in America. So you're saying that the American sports industry is still putting that premium on the human experience. So perhaps the metaverse has some more work to do to to try and, I don't know, replicate that or or add enough value that it is truly enticing to get people away from in-stadium to sit at home and be in that meta space. I think what I worry the most about is, is the metaphors going to be just another, oh, this is really exciting, I'm getting a new experience, and then, okay, I've done it once, let's go. Yeah. Um, or is it going to be something that is really integrated into our lifestyles, you know? So yeah. I don't think it's going to be either one or the other. I think it's going to be a, a great mix of the two. Yeah. Um, just like you have, you know, your product mixes with your different subscriptions. Now you can get Hulu, uh, Disney, and uh, ESPN all at once, which yeah. is great because then you can watch your normal TV series in a sense, then sports, and then Disney movies that are timeless, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you have a kid or you yeah. are a kid at heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think that. these bundling of experience is going to happen more than just you can choose one or the other yeah 
I'm with you. What what advice would you have, like, with Sport 5, if they say to you, or Borussia Dortmund, you know, they say, look, Karma, we need help. We need help with the meta experience. We want to create this metaverse experience, but we need it to be more than just a flash in the pan. We need it to be something that, you know, an audience truly wants to come back for more and more and more. What, what advice would you have for them? I think for me, it's first ask, what is the long-term goal? Mm. Because what is this metaverse option going to look like? What is it supposed to do for your fans? You yeah. know, uh, rather than let's just have metaverse <laughs> or yeah. let's just have NFTs. It's like, okay, what do you want to do with it? What is the goal? How do you see it expand? And do you have the data to back up such an investment? Because it is yeah. an investment at the end of the day, right? Totally. So, and are fans going to be able to adopt it as well? Do you fan? Do your fans adopt new technologies at an early mm. stage? Mm. You know, I like that. Having purpose behind it, not just doing it because it's the craze. Doing it <laughs> yeah. with genuine, long-term purpose. I like it. See, this is why Sport Five have got you, Karma, because you've got that <laughs> that sort of clarion call, that that ability to see the bigger picture. And you're only 23. I mean, what you've achieved is just tremendous. Your family must be so proud. I know you've been visiting family um, in Europe. You've been on a bit of a Euro trip. Your family just must be so proud of you. I mean, it started with, oh, you work in sports, you're going to manage a gym, to, wow, actually, there's <laughs> all of this behind it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think that, no, they're proud, and I'm just so happy they've, always supported me along the way always allowed me to go wherever i decided to go mm. i mean i've been it's been an absolute privilege this past six years building up to this yeah. and i'm just so grateful for sport five to give me a chance you know like hey oh. i can do something give me a chance <laughs> yeah well totally it is all about that opportunity but you have richly deserved this i know you got a little bit of time doing your euro trip going around i think you're in italy the other day you're in the netherlands today i'm so jealous and then you're going to be on madison avenue as the star recruit of sport five karma we are so lucky to have you on this show um yeah thank you very much for your time we'll chat in a couple of weeks thank you for having me ah oh, great stuff to have karma back on the show well that wraps us up big show Hopefully next week we've got this uh, this story out of Queensland, which, yeah, don't miss it. Hopefully next week. All right. Thank you very much for your company. Uh, and, of course, don't miss ASTN online anytime. .com.au with an ASTN in front of that. Thank you very much. Catch you next week. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at ASTN.com.au.